It's September 20th, 2021. This is Rook. He has become one of the best-known names in Iranian rock music, and his group has recorded songs that can be sung by Persians around the world. Arash Subhani and his band Kiosk were among the pioneers of Persian indie rock music in the early 2000s and have scored some big hits in the process. Now Arash is a TV producer, a TV presenter, and an activist as well as his work as a musician, but he's just released a new album and related film that is drawing comparisons to the style of Pink Floyd's The Wall. Arash Sopani joins us for a feature interview. Plus, we have your letters of the week. This is conversations from, to, and about the Iranian diaspora. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Hi there, welcome to episode 146 of Rook. What's so funny? Because you still, you have business <laughs> and you always wait till the microphones are on and then, you, and then you're like moving your microphone. Can, can and I just live my life? What? Could you just get set up by the time we're actually recording <laughs> no, rather than... I live by my own rules. No, it's the microphones are on, we're about to start talking and then Keon's <laughs> hitting the table and moving the things and... Ladies and gentlemen, we're keeping all of this. <laughs> Hope you're keeping well wherever you're tuning in from around the world. Hello to you from Toronto, Canada. Salam Dustan Aziz. Welcome to Rook. You know, we have the, I do the whole intro with the music. Most podcasts just start like, uh, okay, here we go. You know? yeah. And, you know, nobody, no one cares about this whole intro that I do. We got the music, I'm timing the words, it's I write beautiful. it out. It's epic. Does uh, anybody listen to it? You you clearly, when I say no one cares, I mean you don't care, Keon. Because first of all, you're typing things through the whole time I'm recording. When I, you know, as soon as we start, and I've got my little thing, you're typing, and then you, and then the microphones are yeah. on, and sure enough, Keon knocks over her shake and you know moves the microphone. Hey, there's a, a reason she's got the uh, bulldozer title. Exactly. <clears throat> I live by my. Title. The bulldozer, True. yeah. You should get that tattooed somewhere. <laughs> oh yeah, that's, the no, bulldozer. No, I don't have any tattoo, but I'll get that right across my chest. <laughs> like Arash Sobhani going to be joining me in just a little bit. You know, he's our big feature interview today. He lives in Sweden currently. He's been in uh, California where he's promoting this new album and film project. Um, I'm excited to have Arash on Shaya. Yes. I guess he's. I mean, when you were coming up as a musician, he's one of the pioneers of what we would call indie rock or, or sort of alternative rock music from Iran, right? Yes, yes, correct. Yeah, I mean, they could put Persian lyrics into the 
dire uh, straits style of music. Right, 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 right. <laughs> the dire straits. It's another one. The, the, do you even know who dire straits are? I have no are? idea. You would know who they are. You would know who if you were they? in Iran. They're another <laughs> band that's like Pink Floyd. And oh. what's that fucking band that every that I've never heard of? Modern that, talking. Mo- yeah. Modern talking. Modern talking. <laughs> I love they're modern another, talking. They're actually, they're not. Oh my god. <laughs> you didn't grow up in Iran. How do it's, you like it's modern talking? Because of my mom. I don't know. So one oh. of her relatives oh. got her into it. It is the worst. I mean, <laughs> I whenever I go and say, I, sometimes I think maybe I was wrong. Iranians <laughs> love this. Let me go listen to this. It is the worst oh, music. I, this horrible. I think it's a joke. I think it's a no. parody. I think they're joking. <laughs> like they're. We're, let's do some no. cheesy Euro pop from the eighties. No, no name, no number. Na, okay, that's a bad one. But you're, you're my heart. You're my soul. I've never. First of all, I've never heard of this band until my Persian cousin was like. Um, the biggest band ever like he thought they were like <laughs> you know the Rolling Stones you know <laughs> you don't know modern talking you know um, <laughs> I like it but kiosk and by the way now, now we're going to get into the kiosk kiosk oh no right? that hurts my is from the band in I get Farsi if we're speaking in Persian we have to say kiosk yes right I don't like the sound but of again that. in English uh, I think you would have to say kiosk which is the way it's spelled mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm gonna when I introduce him I'm gonna say kiosk and then at some point yeah I, I just know I know that there's Persians listening who are gonna say in baba in balad they don't he doesn't know what he's saying they say that in general so they do okay. say well, yeah you know <laughs> anyway, Arash has been, I mean, he's a musician and he's written this this cinematic musical that we're going to talk about. It's like an album, but it's also got a, a whole long film attached to it that's kind of half animated. That's why in the intro I was saying in the style of Pink Floyd's The Wall. I mean, mm. it's really cool what he's done. But he's also, folks will know, he's the TV producer of that Persia's Got Talent mm-hmm. and he hosted a show called Replay, kind of a music show on NBC Persia, and uh, basically he's been busy as a beaver. Sounds like it. <laughs> An expression you guys now know. Uh. Busy as a beaver. By the way, uh, be, uh, sorry, uh, let me do my formal introductions of the fabulous Keon yes. and the Captain Reza. Hello, sir. And the Groovy Shai. Yeah. Now, um, at the end of the last show, because we were talking about busy as a beaver. <laughs> We were wondering what the Persian word for beaver is. And yeah. go ahead, uh, Shaya. It's uh, Reza, actually. Oh, Reza, yeah. It, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> oh, Jesus. It's Saga Abi. Saga Abi. <laughs> now, Why is that so funny to you guys? Because for us, because for us, me? like, we don't know these. Like, we, when we, the last week was the first time we'd heard this, right, Kian? I mean, I don't think. Dog? Also, because you don't say. <laughs> Beaver doesn't come a lot up in a lot of Persian conversations. No. Yeah. It's, a, it's a Canadian animal, you know, or whatever. So Saga Abi, let me just to translate that. Saga is dog, and Abi is Abi is actually blue, but it can also mean of water, you yeah, know. So, so dog. Dog, dog water. Dog of water. (laughs) The funny thing for us is, like, could these brilliant Persians, the land of Rumi, could we not come up with a a word rather than... Imagine the first time they named it all. It looks like a water dog. It is clearly a dog of water again. It's a dog of water. Oh, now I get it why you guys are well, laughing. Because you guys are translating oh, Farsi. I've never <laughs> seen this animal before. What should we call it? It is dog of water. 
That's insane. So it's like the camel, Shotor Mor, literally like yeah. camel chicken. It's so good. And I don't think Persians, like they just be like, what's wrong with these two? Why are they laughing at this? It's it's a, you know, but I think for people like us yeah. who grew up outside of Iran, right. I mean, dog of water. <laughs> oh, you could just see, I mean, you know, like the great thinkers, you know, the um, we must, uh, uh, um, Reza John, we have to come up with name for this animal. We do not have the. Uh, let's see. Um, <laughs> How about dog of water? <laughs> you know what I think it is? I have a theory. I think we don't have because we don't have beavers in Iran, right? A lot of these animals don't exist, or right. very few of them. So yes. my assumption is that the, probably the first time an Iranian saw a beaver, asked whoever was around, "What is this animal?" And then they were like, "A beaver." And it's like kind of looks like a dog, and uh. it lives in in the water. And they're like, "Yeah." It's like, "All right, now we call it." Uh, yes, we understand where the. Thank you, Reza. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that. Very it looks like a dog and it's in the water. Yes, we understand. <laughs> it's like I like how Reza's like, you see, uh, let me explain this. Uh, you guys it, are it looks a bit like a dog and it goes in the water and that's why they called it a dog. Yes, we get that. We're saying it's funny because it's so literal. It's like there was no creative name for this animal. It was just dog of water. We also have Asbobi. Oh yeah, that's, well that's seahorse. Seahorse. Oh, sea no, 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 not seahorse. No, what? that that's Aspe Daryai. <laughs> oh, Aspe Abi kudum. Aspe Abi is hippopotamus. No. Oh yeah, he's no. right. He's right. No. Oh You're my kidding god. Me. Oh my god, that's How, amazing. What part of a hippo <laughs> looks like a horse? That's he's right. The, well, it's know. big, so that's <laughs> the only reference there. Horse one. He's right. He's right. I totally horse. forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> wow. There's basically a bunch of <laughs> bunch of animals <laughs> of water. Dude, we only had cats, dogs, and horses. Yeah, what do you expect? That is so that's good. Right, that's right. And, and you just go through the list. Uh, is it a Corbe uh, Obi? No. It is a Saga Obi? No. It is Asma Obi. Oh, God. And then we call seahorse. Aspedarioi. Yes. That's amazing. Thank you, Reza. Shia said that about three yeah, minutes ago. Did. I was reiterating. I don't know. I feel like. We're coming coming to you on rookmedia.com. Rookmedia.com. It's there that you can link to all of our platforms. <laughs> you know, the fans of R.I. Sobhani who've never who've never heard Rook before and are just tuning yeah. into this episode. Like, who are these like, idiots they talking about animals? They, talk, <laughs> they spent the first 15 minutes talking about, laughing about Sagaabi. It's just so good, Sagaabi. Uh, also, the first time you said it last week, I thought Blue Dog, like I was. I wasn't thinking I'll oh, yeah. be like of yeah. water. I was thinking I'll it's the blue a, dog. Oh, no, like blue meaning kind of, and you know, blue is in poetic terms is is used to mean sad. sad yeah. So it's the sad dog. <laughs> wow, you read way too Sag, much into Sag, it. Sag <laughs> Who will speak for the beaver? The Saga Abi. <laughs> Amazing. The blue dog. Um, it, it is at rookmedia.com that you can link to all of our platforms. We're on an ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. Oh, we're on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, uh, Instagram, Castbox. If you want to see visuals uh, with Rook, switch over to YouTube right now or on Instagram at Rook Media. And if you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in both English and Persian, check us out on Telegram. 
program. I was in uh, New York City right, this weekend. I was going to ask you, how was that? I saw our fabulous uh, friend, the, the great uh, legendary artist, uh, Nikki Nojumi. Mm-hmm. He has an exhibition there in, in Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Go to Nikki Nojumi's uh, Instagram page or his website, and it'll explain where the exhibition is. It's, uh, it's really worth seeing his stuff in person, uh, and it was lovely to see him as well. But uh, I want to say on Saturday night, I went to uh, Ray's Candy Store. Oh. Yeah. Now, Ray has had this uh, candy store at, uh, if you go down to the East Village in New York City, um, a little close to where I lived for a few months once, it's literally Avenue A uh, and uh, 7th Street. Yeah, it would be 7th Street and Avenue A, right? In the East Village. And that's what they just call Alphabet City, right? So 7 and A, there's a, this, the Ray's Candy Store is where you, uh, you can get an ice cream, you get your soft ice cream, you get a, a smoothie, like a, a shake, you know, and or you can get, you know, donuts, like things like that, candy, mm-hmm. chocolatey things. Mostly it's ice cream and soft mm. ice cream and stuff like that. This place is an institution. It's been there for years. The East Village has been, you know, it used to be like kind of the cool artisty punk kind of place and and now it, it's still got an artist vibe to it but the east village is certainly gentrified all through the early 2000s this starbucks has started to open and you know but this little place has been there throughout it all mm. and ray the owner is has been there and he's still there he's still there and ray is uh i think he's 88 years old now no. now why am i telling this story because ray is actually Asghar. Asghar Kahraman. Yeah. Uh, And uh, Asghar, you know, about 50 years ago, he, I guess he left or he deserted the uh, Iranian uh, army and came to to the United States and started this candy store, uh, which I think has been around for almost 50 years, like more. And and sure enough, there he was behind the counter on a Saturday night. Ray Asghar still yeah. still working, you know, still, uh, and he, he kind of has this like young. I mean, it's to be honest, it's kind of chaos in there. I mean, he's eighty eight, you know, he's so like, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, he's like, oh, what do you want? What do you, you know? And he's kind of, but it was great to see Ray there. He there he is, and so. Wow. If you're ever in New York and you go down to the East Village and you go down to 7 and A, I mean, New Yorkers will know this place, but you'll see Ray still there, Asghar Gahraman. And about 10 years ago, he finally became a U.S. citizen. And it was, uh, there were articles written about him. I mean, uh, after all these it took years, him he was 40 in his, years. It took him many years. Wow. And I think it had something to do with the fact that he was a military person or something like that. Like he got sort of pardoned by Reagan or something. I mean, there was a whole deal with him. It did, it did take him 40 years. There was, you know, there's articles around finally, uh, you know, Ray from Ray's candy store is a U.S. citizen. (laughs) So anyway, yeah, it's a lovely, lovely story. You you know, we, we talk a lot about Iranians who are newer immigrants to uh, the diaspora and, and uh, we celebrate them and talk about them. Here's somebody who came many, many years ago and who, for the most part, folks wouldn't even know his, I mean, his name's Ray, right? Oh, and he's yeah. kind of, you know, he's got a bit of an accent and stuff. But there he is uh, in his baseball cap. And <laughs> and amazing. while I was there, we were, I was getting a, a vanilla like uh, people. There was actually a few people who wanted vanilla ice cream, and and the the kid who was working there was like, oh, we don't have any more. And then Ray slash Asghar slash kiosk slash kiosk <laughs> said uh, said, uh, uh, no, we have. Go get the, you know. And then he <laughs> climbed up gingerly, like you know, uh, and got up to the top to fill the machine with some cream oh, wow. to get the vanilla ice cream. Yeah, it's, it was oh, lovely. Incredible. Yeah. 
Well, two things. One, you made the same impression as Asghar as you make of me. Asghar sounds a lot like me. <laughs> <laughs> Secondly, is the origin. Well, he has of more of accent. He's like, what do you want? Vanilla, okay, like that. You well, don't if have I had that, a thicker yeah. accent, no, probably, you're just more like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But thank you. <laughs> got yeah. it, got it. I'll work on that. What's the second thing? Uh, the second thing I was going to say, he's the original candy man. I love it. Mm-hmm. Raised candy store. Raised yeah. candy store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and by the way, uh, Reza, do you know how they got uh, Saga Abi? <laughs> they. They thought the beaver looks like a dog, and the beaver would go in the water, so they called it the dog of water. Oh, my God. Uh, <sighs> oh, what a culture. Working with a Mensa <laughs> a PhD over here. I mansplained it to you. <laughs> you certainly did. Hey, a shout-out to Katy Kavandi and Katy Kavandi Immigration Services, Inc. Kavandi.ca is the website. Katy is a certified immigration consultant and the CEO of her company. She's a very well-reviewed resource for those wanting to come to Canada. She's got offices in Toronto and Tehran. So Katy is an immigrant from Iran herself, learned the ropes of the process of coming to Canada and has tremendous knowledge in immigration procedures and legislation. Her company acts as the client's advocate before the courts, government officials, IRB, IRCC offices. She makes herself and her team available throughout the whole process. And of course, she does this in Persian and in English. You can find her at kavandi.ca. We're linking to that on our screen and on the description, uh, whatever platform you're listening to on this uh, episode, you can find it there um kavandi.ca katy kavandi also find her on instagram at katy.kavandi.immigration and a shout out to myterms.ca anita and arash fazali poor their life partners and business partners and the founders of myterms.ca kian you know it by now, myterms.ca. I'm familiar with them. That's yes. right. Mortgage company from uh, Ontario, Canada. Really good record uh, with myterms.ca, focusing on the service aspect of the mortgage business, and they are very well reviewed online as well. They specialize in multi-million dollar transactions through institutional and private sources and represent a handful of wealthy private investors who focus on one to $10 million first or second mortgages. If you are a builder, developer or a mortgage broker looking to team up with a great source. This company is what you need. Check them out online at myterms.ca or give them a call at 416-MYTERMS if you're in Canada, 416-MYTERMS, and they make it a big priority to give back to the Persian community as well. Thanks to Arash and Anita Fazilipur, myterms.ca. Today is, uh, I mean, by the time people are hearing it, I mean, today was, or, you know, uh, I- election day in Canada. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Did you guys and vote? I did. I'm voting as soon as we end the show. Good. Yeah. Actually, you can vote in the building. I, I know, yeah. I, but How I can't convenient. because uh, oh, I don't right, live here. right, right, yeah. that's right. Oh, people who live yeah. in this area, mm. like uh, Captain Reza. Yeah. Right. Now, Shai, you probably can't vote just no, yet, right? No. Would you be excited to be able to vote in Canada? Yes, and also I love voting. Oh yeah, okay. Because yeah. it's a, it's a kind of social practice to contribute to the society. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's kind of a passive form of it. It's one x every four years or something like that. Yes. But still, it is political participation. And and there are people who argue that these elections that we have are are mm. are skewed as well here. But certainly, to have an election that means something mm. in terms of the results, rather than something that's rigged or. Uh, you know, uh, yes. problematic the way it is back home, yes, uh, yes. the other home in Iran that is, uh, is has got to be gratifying. So this feels, this election, for those people not 
who are listening and aren't in Canada, it's kind of one of those that's a bit of a referendum on our prime minister, on Justin mm-hmm. Trudeau. You basically vote based on how you feel about Trudeau. And he kind of called this early election, it felt sort of opportunistic to some right. people that he was like, okay, maybe I can, because there's a minority government, maybe they'll get a majority and they still may, or, you know, by the time people hear this, the results will be out there. But I wanted to say it's still weird to me that Trudeau, because people, so many people have talked about Trudeau in yeah. this election campaign, that Trudeau has come to mean Justin, because when I was a kid, mm-hmm. the prime minister was Trudeau, mm-hmm. but it was Justin's dad. Yeah, it was Pierre yeah. Elliott Trudeau, like up until 1984, for 16 years, the prime minister. So, you know, basically, if you were born before that, the only thing you ever knew is prime minister is that guy, is, is Pierre Trudeau. Yeah. And Iranians are a lot of immigrants, mm-hmm. but people like my dad, Loved Pierre Trudeau. So I guess we can already assume who you're going to you vote cannot, for. <laughs> you cannot assume that. And I, I never say who I vote for. And yeah. I will tell you that I have voted for every party mm. in, in my years in Green Canada. Green Party, too? In, even the Green wow, Party ones. Yeah, is, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, it, <laughs> well, you know, I've always voted based on what I believe in, but also based on the candidate. And there's um. sometimes when you're in a riding where your vote may not make a difference. In other words, you know who's gonna get elected, mm. and you can use your vote to support a candidate that you particularly like, or something like that. I mean, there's different ways mm-hmm. people, different reasons people vote. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, no, you really actually can't guess, uh, Keon. On the other hand, I think I have a sense <laughs> of who you would vote for. <laughs> I think everybody has a sense of who I would vote for. And there's nothing wrong with that. As he's Absolutely going on not. about the Trudeau. No, no, I, listen, listen. I mean, I, I, I'm yeah, not yeah. suggesting that all Persians support the liberals or should. or. Yeah. And there's a lot of a lot of folks who are very angry at, mm. uh, at both Justin Trudeau and Pierre Trudeau mm. at, at things that they really uh, uh, did that people don't believe in and all that. Mm. Uh, I, this is a simple story about my dad as an immigrant but you know appreciating the multiculturalism policy in in 71 etc yeah i was gonna say you know it's funny the fact that uh trudeau is still popular amongst a lot of newcomer iranians which trudeau uh justin oh yeah like the trudeau family justin (laughs) justin no justin is very popular amongst a lot of newcomer iranians and uh yeah like you go on especially when it comes to immigration like people love him it killed the vibe, didn't we? Talking about Paul. Let's get out of this conversation somehow. Help us here. Jesus. <laughs> it was better when we were talking about Sega RV. It keeps getting worse. Yeah. This parachute is a knapsack. <laughs> no, no one's going to be left for R, so funny. They're too busy writing angry letters at us. Uh, yeah, really. Uh, speaking of letters, we have some uh, letters coming yeah, up Yeah, I will say today's letter of the week is like pretty gold, oh, honestly. All right. I loved reading it. Well, we will get to that uh, and more. Uh, the fabulous Keon, Groovy Shia, and Captain Reza stick around. Let's get to our feature guest. You know, my feature guest today is a is an Iranian musician and TV host and producer who's played a role in breaking the mold of what is defined as the Iranian sound. He has been the producer of Persia's Got Talent, uh, the man behind the, the recent music TV series Replay, and was the host of the popular satirical news program on VOA Persia on 10. But Arash Subhani, is undoubtedly best known to Iranians across the diaspora and in Iran as the lead singer and guitarist of the Persian rock band Kiusk. The band and Arash have been known for their catchy melodies and sharp, smart, satirical lyrics that highlight the paradoxes of Iranian society and its political dysfunction. Arash was born in Iran. He got his MA in architecture, but music was his destiny. 
And when prevented from performing in public or publishing his music in Tehran, he formed Kiosk and moved to the United States in 2005 to release Kiosk's first album, Ordinary Man. Kiosk continued their musical journey thereafter. Arash has recorded 10 albums with Kiosk and now has created perhaps his biggest cultural project yet. He has just released Payana Shirin, Sweet Destiny, the first ever musical in Iranian cinema. Take a listen to this. Little taste of Arash Sobhani and Kiosk and a song called Ma from the soundtrack of the new animated and live action film Sweet Destiny. The film premiered on VOA on August 20th. It's now available online. The band will donate all proceeds from the film to the Iran Human Rights Organization with the primary aim to eradicate capital punishment in Iran. And right now, Arash Sobhani joins me from San Francisco, California today. Hello, sir. Hi, Jim. So good to be here. Nice to have you on the program, my friend. You, you, I mean, you've been a busy guy. Persia's Got Talent, replay, concerts, appearances, a new album, a film project. I, I know you were back in Sweden, then in London, now in California. Um, how are you coping with this breakneck schedule? Yeah, I mean, uh, given the situation in the world with everything going on and everything's on stall in a way, uh, we managed to have a kind of a productive year in, the, in 2021 and especially in 2020 uh, keeping myself busy especially with uh, tv projects but this this album was something that was in the making for quite a few years actually it took us four years to finish it but i'm excited that you know uh, we, we managed to do this uh, all while you know nothing much was going on yeah i mean i mean it's clear that you're an a-type personality you <laughs> <laughs> you didn't use the pandemic as a chance to rest <laughs> no, no, I, I, and it was it was actually the best time to catch up with the things you you wanted to finish. <laughs> you know, it's funny. The last time you were on Rook, it was for our Pink Floyd special, and now you've gone and made, uh, you, you know, I mean, without being uh, sort of melodramatic about it, the truth is, it's the closest thing to the wall that we have had in Persian music. I mean, this is what we used to call a, a rock opera, you know, in the tradition of the the band The Who or something. Uh, the sheer ambition of the project is audacious for me what was the precipitant behind not just wanting to make a, a new record but then to make it as a film as well and to to have a concept behind it uh yeah i think i think pink floyd is a good starting point actually i think uh, we discussed how influential pink floyd has been on iranian musicians uh, saying that you know when you grow up when you're a kid and you have a you start your band uh, when you watch the wall, that's the first thing you want to do. You always think like, can I can I do that someday? Can I do something close to that? So that's always in the back of your head, and the challenge is really really attractive. Uh, but uh, the experience we had from the previous album, having a concept album and telling a story, you know, as opposed you know having an album as as one continuity uh, rather than you know selection of few songs, 
it doesn't make sense anymore. People do singles these days. And uh, so we thought, you know, it's probably time that we give it a shot because the last last uh, last album was a, was a trial. It was really uh, a delightful experience and I really enjoyed it. It was based on a true story though. And this time I thought, you know, I could be more daring and, and, and try to do it. Maybe we can do it and pull it off. And, and we did. I mean, I mean, it, it is everything that uh, people are not doing these days in the musical marketplace. <laughs> uh, and for, and for, you know, business reasons, they don't do it. Sorry. I mean, it, you know, the, the marketplace is now about digital downloads, singles, as you just said, quick hits a concept album with a film attached to it that's not really about pop hits or or uh you know a big thing out of the box i mean it's it's just not the current business model uh, it may it may be for a band like radiohead who can bankroll it but did it concern you that you were doing something that is definitely swimming against the tide of the the current culture um yes i think in a way i was aware of the risk we were taking and, and the consequences, of, obviously, as you said, you know, there was no financial uh, <clears throat> justification for a project like this. And uh, it was just attractive. And we just felt like we should do it. We can do it now. Uh, because we had enough talents and friends and people who were willing to help that made it possible. And I thought, you know, why we have these resources, if you don't make use of it, and if you don't get everybody involved and, and, and do a project like this, we may never get a chance to do it again. And uh, and we were very lucky that, that we we were uh, associated with all these people who uh, chipped in or you know helped us financially or, or with their talents and you know what have you to be able to pull it off. So uh, I guess we we were kind of aware that this is not a financial project. Did you it's know just, you wanted to make a film and you wrote towards it, or did you write the album and then say, "Fuck, this has got to be a film." No, we started, I mean, kind of, we wanted to have a, a, a rock opera film and we wanted to have a story. So while we were writing the story, we kind of uh, uh, came up with sections, chapters, as you say, uh, for different chapters for the whole story when we had the structure of the story. And then we realized where we needed songs and what type of songs could fit in. So it kind of evolved uh, parallel. Hmm. I mean, it's got to feel... Uh you know, you've been so identified more recently with being the TV guy, whether it's on on air or behind the scenes as a producer, as a business person, almost, you know, as an executive, um, that I've got to think that it's got to feel somehow liberating or, or, or exciting in some visceral sense to be putting out creative musical content again. Uh, to, uh, we'll get into your TV stuff later, but but tell tell me about the emotions behind putting this out. It, it's it's really interesting, you know, what, you, what you're pointing out right now, because I think to me it's always about you know telling a story or to, to sharing your emotions when you uh, write a piece of music. And I've noticed when I when I talk too much in a, in a period of time with people and, and open up too much, I kind of vent out my feelings, and then I f I don't feel like writing anymore. And when I keep it to myself, I feel like it just you know, word styles in, in forms of songs. So when you're doing all these different projects, you feel like a lot of your energy and a lot of the things you want to say or do or explain or express, they kind of come out. And then when you sit down to write a song, you feel like, you know, it, it just doesn't feel uh, original anymore to you. Uh, so to keep that balance has all, always been a, a problem for me uh, ever since I started doing TV. 
That's so interesting you should say that. I That resonates for me. It's like if I sit down to write a song now, like I've said it all on Rook last week or so. I don't have anything. Exactly. I got exactly. nothing left, yeah. right? <laughs> I'm repeating myself, yeah. Right, right. So you have to... Um, you have to somehow uh, portion off or, or, or create boundaries around what you do to preserve your your creative well. It's yeah. It's kind of you know. It's kind of dangerous because you you start to, after a while you start to realize because people like us we we're not just you know these days we're on social media too and you think of something funny you want to tweet that but if you keep that and use it in one of your lines for a song maybe it can work better. But you don't know what to do. So you start to develop different characters. You become different personalities. It's okay, things like this when it excites me in this way, these are good for a, for a TV show or for, for a tweet or for a post on Instagram. But if it excites me in this way, then my character uh, you know, tells me to, maybe I can use it in a song. You know right. what I'm trying but, to say? But, but being the executive producer of Persia's Got Talent can is surely not a substitute for writing a love song, is it? No, it's not. But but you, I think a lot of your mental capacity and and your creativity goes gets sucked into something else. And uh, I don't know. I feel like uh, your focus, your your, when you start to think outside the box, you focus more on the TV project than 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 songwriting. If you're into it, you know, because TV is always like a fire. You know, yes. you have to be the hundred <laughs> percent. And and it's always in the moment. I find that. Uh, uh, media, uh, broadcast, TV, radio, it's always about today, whereas music that you write can be about the future or, your, or something that people are going to hold on to. Exactly. But but you feel that at that moment, you want to kind of preserve that moment and, and share it with people later. And again, I think it's you start to develop different personalities within yourself. That's, that's the danger I'm starting to feel. Really? And how would you describe your different personalities? What, uh, what, are, what are the different personalities of Ara Shobhani? Like, I, I become more, uh, uh, I don't know, I, I never tried to sit down and kind of uh, list, you know. The, Here's the, the chance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So on top of my head, I feel like when I'm working on, on TV projects, I've become very, 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 very focused and, and uh, uh, I kind of uh, lose track of time and, and, and uh, you know, very objective. But when I'm writing a song, I become very, very like let go and and take my time and try to feel the song really and don't have a deadline for myself. I don't try to finish at a certain time, and it's just very opposite feelings. Can I take a, can Can I take a stab at it? I think this. I think the music. I mean, notwithstanding the politics, we'll get to the politics. But I think the music is the romantic side of you. Yes, I, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, running, hosting replay is not the romantic side of you. It's, no. <laughs> uh, although, it, although it's a job well done. Th this, let me ask you a couple more questions about this, uh, this latest uh, project in the film before we get into um, more, more of your background. Th this, if, for people who, sh who watch it, and they should, they can go see it online now. It's a wild mix of animation and real images. It's almost like, um, well, I mean, to a certain extent, it's, like, it's unlike anything I've ever seen. I mean, it, it, I, I name-checked Radiohead earlier, but it reminds me of a Radiohead uh, video, uh, except it's an hour long. Who came up with the aesthetic for this? Um, it was a process, I think, it really. We, we started from, a, from old picture, photography, you know, a, a very old uh, image, picture that was taken 150 years ago. And we wanted to base that as our background and 
recreate that. So, you know, animation techniques we discussed. And and then uh, after a lot of back and forth and, and kind of studying a lot of different techniques, uh, we thought using old photos and uh, images of Yuan and kind of uh, uh, distorting them in a way, uh, like the cartoons, a lot of the, you know, uh, the artist Irish Humanist has a lot of cartoons that have those characters or uh, the closest thing maybe in America would be the Gonzo, you know, the, uh, type of journalism that, you know, they, the, the type of cartoons they do, you know, how they dis distort the characters. So we thought we can do that with real images because of the quality of the images from uh, from 100 years ago. They were not that good to, to kind of blend them in. So it was a process of between uh, myself and Kajart, the production company that did the animation. We went back and forth and we came up with ideas, but I sketched out the characters. I had the, the faces in my head. Hmm. So I sketched them out and I told them, okay, I think this guy should look like this. He has a beard, he has a long hair or whatever. And uh, they, did you they, did you literally yeah. sketch them out? You can do yes, that. Yes, yeah, yeah. I have the sketches. Yeah. Oh wow. Well, you are an architect, so I guess that yeah. would be uh, you, you. You know how to draw. Yeah. yeah, but you know, it was cartoons. It was just just to kind of communicate more. It wasn't it wasn't a uh, decent sketch, but but they got the picture. There's a there's a political impetus and narrative to the the album and the film, and the proceeds are going to a human rights organization. I, it occurs to me, you know, I mean, with Iran, where do we start? There are so many issues uh, when it comes to contemporary Iran. Talk to me about why capital punishment was where you wanted to focus this. Looking at that picture, looking at the original picture, you see a lot of the bad things that the society has been carrying with it, this this culture has been carrying with it in the last 100, 200 years. And that really, really kind of struck me in a way that I couldn't get it out of my head. And uh, back when I was doing the uh, political satire show, actually, I would get a lot of calls, emails from people inside the country that, you know, they would discuss their problems because they thought I have a position, I'm in front of the camera, I can talk about their problems. And a lot of the, a lot of times you get emails. People, you know, my brother's in prison. He's going to be executed in two weeks. Can you help? And you know, Iran has one of the highest numbers of uh, capital punishment in the world. So yes. all of Iranian families, one way or another, know someone or a family that's been affected by this this uh, vicious punishment. And you don't know how to start talking about this. How to how to tell people? How to tell the society that this is wrong? This is definitely wrong, and we need to really take it serious we can't we can't keep killing innocent people like this and uh, so that was that's where it came from i think it, it was it was it was very personal for me in, in a way there is an execution we witness in the film i mean it, it, um it's not it's not a spoiler alert because it it's uh that the hat is tipped early on um in the film but but we don't really know or find out what the crime is and we um i mean we never find out why, why is that important it's important because it's not about justice. You know, the, the whole circus is not about justice. It's just about showing power. It's about manipulation. It's about uh, fear. It's about everything but justice. So it really doesn't matter who this guy is and what he's done. So purposefully, I don't even get into that subject. I thought I thought maybe it was a commentary on the fact that um, at this stage, it seems like people are executed for such a, a absurd or trumped up reasons um, that that the crime actually uh, the the quote unquote crime becomes irrelevant. In in a way, the the song that you just play in Ma has a verse that says, you know, the the convict is just like you all all of you. His only uh, sin was that he was caught. Uh, his only uh, crime was that he was caught, and and he's just similar to everybody else. So in a way, that's true. I mean, 
you know, I, I don't know if you heard or not, but few few months ago, uh, they executed someone in Mashhad for drinking alcohol. It was the second time that he was being picked up. So according to Sharia, he was he should have been executed. So that's what they did. They did. And I have drank alcohol. You drank alcohol. So all of us are potential, uh, you know, uh, victim of this this vicious uh, punishment. So it, it, it's a big big thing. You know, the film has this, it's, it's, it's such an eclectic journey through this film because it, it, it's quite dark and there's the historical images mixed with the, the animation. Um, then there's this moment about halfway through uh, where we look like we're watching a, a Western ad or, or video. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's this satirical kind of song. It's actually an English song on the album called Half Salad. Let me just play a little bit of this. Taste of the song Half Salad from the new Arash Sobhani and Kiosk uh, film and album called Payanashirin Sweet Destiny. I mean, that song feels a bit like an outlier, not just because it's English, but it's very satirical uh, in terms of what the, the message. Tell, tell me about that song. Yeah, it's it's about these characters, you know, like back to the to the original picture we were talking about. When I was looking at these faces in that scene, you see them today, you know them, you kind of... Uh, know who they are around you and it's about this group of iranians who live outside of iran they're, they're somehow connected to the government of the regime so they make a lot of money back home so they're okay with the system there and they don't mind the oppression they don't mind people being poor but they spend their money outside they go to vegas they are in hollywood they go to whistler to ski and you know so they're happy with the status quo so they, they they're not complaining and and the the double standard they have when they're outside of the country and when they're inside the country uh is 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 what the song is about you know how do we know who those people are <laughs> <laughs> that's the eternal question whenever there's a, a, a you know a wealthy iranian i mean the, 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 you know people are say oh well they he's with the regime you know or something i mean how, how do you how are we supposed to deconstruct that I mean, it's, 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 I know it's, you, you can't really generalize and say whoever has money is obviously with the regime because that's not the case. But, uh, but you're in Canada, you're in Toronto, you know a lot. I mean, you see a lot of them every of day. Of course, of course. I mean, uh, uh, and not, not to mention that this has been broken down. There's academics who've, who've talked about the fact that there are now thousands of agents of the Iranian uh, uh, government or regime that are in the diaspora around the world. So um, th th this is, you know, I mean, this is just a, va a fact at this point. But, but I'm, I'm certainly not somebody who can necessarily discern uh, who, who is what. I mean, there there are a lot of those uh, those people. You don't need to be uh, officially connected to the regime, but you you can you can 
kind of see from from the political views they have how they behave inside and outside the country like how they try to not pay taxes here but take advantage of the social welfare or what have you and then they go back in Iran and then again take advantage of the system there so it's all about those people who are like half salad half branch which is rice and they're half and half but uh you know it's a mixture of that the, uh, it's, the, it's about opportunities. That the know, status people, quo kind of is a, it benefits them. Why you know there's yes, no, exactly. why, why you know, shake things up? They don't want to change up. anything, right. but uh, right. they also want to have the benefit of the whatever is is good here in the West. I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to that and and the impetus that you clearly feel to speak out on issues as opposed to just uh, enjoying the half salad half bed inch. But um, but let me ask you about one of the. F- the themes of the film and the album uh, that seems clear it's it's the identity and the voice of the of the individual and and the lack of expression of that in Iran you've said that individuality does not really exist in contemporary Iran and and in fact in the Middle East what what do you mean by that I think when you break it down at the end of the day it's about uh, freedom and liberty in its naked definition and uh, you're not allowed to be uh, a lot of things a lot of things in the Middle East you're not allowed I mean from your sexual orientation the music you listen to how you want to dress uh, a lot of those things and you know all the way down to what you believe in what you want to read and what you want to watch or listen to so it's all about these these basic freedoms when they take that away from you you lose your identity as an individual and you have to belong in order to survive, you have to belong to a club. You have to be part of a group. And that's what we see today. I don't believe all these little, you know, 16-year-old, 17-year-old kids we see on TV in Afghanistan picking up a gun. They know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. They just they just need to have to belong to a group to survive. And, and they don't know about, you know, radical Islamism. They probably don't know how to read or write. So that's the problem we see across Middle East. And I think that's, that's a big deal. And, and it comes, and it's a, maybe a cultural thing maybe we should start talking about that maybe by respecting people's differences uh in in every every way i mean you and i might have the political different points of view but we might support the same football team or things like that right. it's really comes down to that that i see it, it's and and i think camera and recording audio and things like that they started to kind of give us the tool to start to so we can create some sort of a very very tight space for ourselves to define you know when you go on instagram and you see all these kids try to create their own identity through social media and i want to trace it back to the first time that people were photographed or, or were recorded that's when they realize they have a voice they have an image so it's it's, it's kind of about those things it's a difficult one because i i can't think i, I think anybody who's listening to this would understand exactly what you mean, as if they, especially if they're of Iranian background and thinking about the context of co- contemporary Iran, that that the suppression or the boundaries that are set um, naturally sap the individuality out and and create this kind of um, this herd. Uh, and at the same time, I feel tentative about saying that because one doesn't want to undercut um, the individuals. In, I mean, the young fashion designer in Shiraz who's doing her best to be an individual and doing some really interesting work in Iran today, right? Isn't that individuality? That is. And, and I think that's actually uh, something that that's, that is the struggle. That is, that is the form of a rebellion in a way. 
these are the people who are trying to to dictate that or to teach the society that we should start to respect each other's differences and, and we, we should be different. It's good to be different. You know what I'm trying to say? It's, I, I'm, I'm not trying to say that there are not people who are not trying to do this. I'm yes, yes. No, I think I, I, I'm sure I, I, I'm sure people understand what you're trying to say. Um, wh- wh- how, how much of an individual were you? I mean, take me back. What was Arash like? If I met you as the young guy studying architecture at the Isfahan University of Art, um, <laughs> who, who would I be meeting? A lot of things pl- come to play when you when you when you try to look back at these things. Like if the internet was back then, it would have been totally different. Uh, R.I. Sopani, of course. How much exposure did I get to to uh, new ideas, new things? You know, you've heard about this this um, very interesting experiment that I read about. I don't know if I can explain it correctly, but it's about the uh, the the mice and they put them in a, in a maze. It's the same maze, and they track their dreams. You know, don't ask me how. Uh, the brain wavelength, however, and because this mouse is is only experiencing the same maze, he dreams of the same maze every night. Hmm. When when they try him on two different mazes, in his dreams he starts to create a new maze in his head, which is not the maze number one or maze number two. Wow. So what I'm trying to say is that when you don't get exposure to what's outside, what else is out there, this is the only option you have. You can be either like your neighbor to your right or your neighbor to your left. That's the only options you get. And was that true of you? You you weren't a big dreamer you, because you didn't have that exposure? You didn't have the internet? As a I did kid. have some exposure to some extent. And I thought, I think, uh, I mean, I was in an underground music band when I was in high school. I tried to be different as much as I could. But I'm sure if I had the, if the resources we have today, the technology was there today, I would have been much more different. What did it, I mean, we're around the same age. And, and so I, you know, I was in an, uh, well, I, I don't know if I would call it an underground. We were playing sort of the doors and Rolling Stones songs and stuff, but I was in a band in high school. I mean, what was it like to be in an underground band and and I'm guessing Tehran uh, as a teenager for you? It was amazing. I mean, it it was just, just, when I look back at some of the pictures that we still managed to get out and keep, it's just an amazing feeling uh, looking. I mean, I feel kind of sad for ourselves looking back now to see when I see uh, what kids our age were doing outside the Iran at the same time. But at the same time, it's really, really amazing feeling that we did it. We we, we were recording analog. Uh, it was, it, the war was going on. It was, it was a lot of, it was a really different, difficult time. Where and, would you get, where would you even get the stuff? I mean, this is like, I guess it's the 80s, right? So you're, yeah, you're in a basement and you're a teenager. Like, how do you, where, did, did you have access to a, a guitar amp and you, and, and all of that? Yeah, I was a lucky one. I had a guitar amp and, and, and a guitar that uh, I brought back because I lived in the U.S. before that for a while. So I brought back some stuff with me. But we would go and and rent and borrow, actually, because there was a, like this this uh, group of Iranian musicians, older generation, who have uh, who had experience. They knew how to record. They knew they had equipment. They would let us borrow, and they would really encourage us. A lot of those guys really, really helped us a lot, teaching us a lot, You know, let us, letting us borrow things from them. When we had recordings and, and, and rehearsals, it, it was it was really amazing feeling to to when I look back, it was interesting. Was the architecture thing um, was that the traditional Persian kid who feels like he has to go into something uh, respectable rather than play rock music, or were you genuinely excited about architecture? Uh, it, it was. It started as as you have to be, of course, uh, go to become an engineer. My dad is an engineer, so that was that was the thing. I didn't want to be a dentist, so. It was it was a mixture of both, and and it was a 
good solution for me because I enjoyed studying architecture and it kept my parents happy at the same time. Hmm. Arash, when did you actually start to dream, uh, back to the, the mice in the maze, uh, that your passion for music could actually be something that uh, might become your life? Um, I really never thought that it would be something that I would do um, as a full-time. I, I never thought that I'd be labeled as a musician or, or a guitar player or a songwriter, or n- none of these. I never thought of that. Uh, but I was always really fascinated by how... Uh, Wait, why didn't you think that? It just never occurred to me. I don't know why. I mean, even when I was I was a uh, eighth grade, I was in, in the U.S. and I even played here with a with a with a band. We had, we had three people just just jamming. Even back then, when I was in the U.S. and there was the opportunity to, I mean, people here can dream, right? Uh, so even back then, I never thought I'd be a musician. And when I went back to Iran, obviously it was really not not an option <laughs> for obvious reasons. But the, the 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 power that the music gives you, and you can say things that uh, people understand without you having to say a lot of other things uh, really fascinated me. And that was in Iran. That, that was when I started to write Farsi. I never thought about writing in Farsi because I always thought, you know, rock music is, is a music that is done in English. It doesn't, you don't right. listen to rock Right. Brazilian. Actually, the, I, we had that conversation um, when I was, uh, first time I interviewed uh, Airfon about being a rapper um, when he was first starting and guys like Hitch Cass, n- no one had actually rapped in Persian before. So they were kind of looking at each other going, is this allowed? Like, we, <laughs> is this is this still rap if we're doing it in Farsi? So I, it occurs to me that that would be, to a certain extent, the same in, in some strands of rock music. I mean, obviously, there were rock bands in the 70s um, predating uh, uh, the post-revolutionary crackdown and all that. But, you know, in terms of the kind of music you would end up playing uh, and, and pioneering to a certain extent, it, there really was no blueprint, right? No, actually, that's 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 the point. Because I, first of all, I think rap is much easier to do in Farsi than, than a rock song because you have to have a melody. That's that's difficult. It doesn't really sit well with the Farsi language in Persian. And and I think the experiences we had in rock before the revolution was just we were just learning how to do this. And by the time we got to Farid and Furuvi and Kulushamai, when it was kind of like smooth and natural, then we had the revolution. So it never got to the point that the lyrics sits well. At the same time, there's a message. At the same time, the message relates to what rock is about. It's not about flower. It's not about how beautiful you are. It's about like I'm angry, you know, fuck the system, things like that. Right. And and we didn't, we never got to that point. And I think that's why I I always thought that you know Farsi is not the, the right language for rock and roll. And when I started to do it and not take it seriously, that's when I started to get feedback. And that was that was when I thought, okay, I, I like this thing. I, feedback I like from whom? I started writing songs for for other people, but you know, obviously, those songs had to be approved by the um, by the government, so they were not really. There was no message to it. It was just like you know, basic stuff. But when I started to write for myself, and I said, Let, "Let's try this. Let's give it a try, and just say whatever you want." And I would pr- play it at parties, and for my musician friends, and the feedback I got from them, uh, and 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 you know, inside you, when you're doing something that's right, you know, you feel like. You don't even care if people like it or not. You feel like, okay, this this feels good. This this feels right, and that's when I thought I like this thing, and and I think uh, I can do a lot of things with this. What what, what was the band you had with Human Javid? Was, was it Raza Shab or oh, Raza Shab? Yeah, tell tell me about Raza Shab in the early two thousands. Yeah, that that was that was a, 
interesting time. I mean, it was like just about the time that um, Khatami uh, became president and there was talk of reforms and the new generation and all of that good stuff. And, and uh, they kind of started to, to loosen up a little bit, the regime. They started because, because there was so many young people just coming out of university. They, they were demanding a lot more. There were satellites. People knew what was going on outside the Internet and all of that. Anyway, and uh, so they kind of lax a little bit. You could do concerts and you could record albums and music was a little bit more tolerated by the government. And we decided to do this band. Um, we had a band when, when, we, when I was in high school called Tatar 2, which we were talking about. We would borrow stuff from people around. But this was this was a legitimate project. We thought, okay, we'll do a band. We go after uh, to get permission. We'll be a decent band. We'll go perform. You know, we get permissions and perform. Uh, do the paperwork and everything. So that's how we went ahead. And uh, it was me, it was Ramin Behna and Shahruz Molai. And then we brought in uh, Human and Farzan to sing for us because none of us were singers. And uh, we did the first, uh, one of the first, I, I would say one of the very first rock concerts after the revolution maybe. Uh, and it was an amazing experience. You know, I was thinking about your... Um the big move that you make, um, and big in terms of not just you, your personal story, but but the launch of Kiosk, um, uh, which I'm just going to, for the sake of this interview from now on, called Kiosk, because it sounds better in English. And the, uh, I remember previously one time you had said, it's okay, you could just say Kiosk, because it sounds wrong either way. When I'm speaking English, if I say Kiosk, it sounds like, what's this guy saying? And, if I, and I know for Persians, when I say Kiosk, they try and correct me. So let's just say Kiosk for now. But the, the, the launch of that band in a big way coincides with the move to America. And that's 2005. And I've been thinking about that going okay so Khatemi 2003 the 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 reforms for better or for worse ostensible reforms etc the opening um uh why would you leave in 2005 and i'm wondering if it was the realization that those reforms i mean i know Ahmadinejad gets elected in 2005 but tell me what the precipitant was for for leaving at that point um by 2000 one, I would say, I, I knew that I wanted to leave. Uh, it, it didn't take me long after Khatani was elected to realize that this is this is fake. Uh, but I couldn't leave then. I had to finish my uh, um, army uh, <clears throat> service and, and then, uh, you know, apply for visas and do the things and, and immigration and things. And, and, and I actually applied for immigration to Canada. But when 2005 happened, then I just knew that there was no point in staying even one more day. I couldn't stand it. I mean, the minute that uh, I woke up, you know, I remember I was staying with her because I was going back and forth between the U.S. and, and, and Iran back then. Uh, my parents were living in America and I had a green card, so I come here and go back and, and I was undecided, you know, what to do. I had a very good job in Iran and I really liked, you know, being with friends and my, my job and everything. <clears throat> but I was staying with a friend. I woke up in the morning and he was checking his computer and he was smoking a cigarette like, 7 a.m. Hmm. And he said, fuck, Ahmadinejad won. And I said, okay. The first phone call I made was to, to my uh, travel agency. And he said, okay, just, just confirm the flight. I'm leaving. You, didn't, you know, you realize you don't have more time to waste. Did you know at that point when you were leaving that that's, you're probably not going to return? Because I was going back and forth a lot in the last year. I was I'm probably going back and forth three times. Uh, uh, somebody very important to me back then, uh, who was my boss, was I was working with uh, told me 
you just have at some point you just have to make a decision not look look back and and either stay don't look back or go and don't look back and when i decided to go i i told myself think of it as, as you may there's a chance that you may never come back uh but i wasn't I was hopeful that it wouldn't be that bad. Mm -hmm. I always thought that, you know, they, they won't last this long and I'm not a criminal. I can always come back and visit, but things didn't work out the way I thought. Yeah. What were the emotions of landing in America at that point, despite the fact that you'd come back and forth, as you say, you're not unfamiliar with the States, so it's not like you have trouble finding your way around, but knowing that you have, you've made this move now, um, as your boss says, or your friend says, uh, you, you do it and don't look back. How would you describe the emotions of that time for you? It was, um, I mean, you, you miss a lot of stuff. Every morning that I woke up uh, for like at least 30 seconds, it would take me 30 seconds to realize I'm not still in Iran. And that took for more more than a year. Every single morning I would wake up and I would be worried about traffic or about being late for some meeting that was happening in Tehran. Uh, so that's how much I was attached to the life that I had in Tehran. But I think having the experience to live in the US and, and knowing how it works here, it's easy. I think it's one of the easiest transitions to move to Canada or the US for us Iranians rather than anywhere else. I think it's it's it, it's not that difficult. It, it, it is still a process. It's still not something that... Sorry, um, why is that? Why is it easier to move here than, say, Sweden? Well, you know, language is one thing, and, and the fact that everybody here is, is uh, one way or another immigrant. An immigrant you don't I feel see, right, that right. you don't belong. You know, it's, it, it's, it's a lot of those things, a lot of those little things that makes you feel comfortable. You don't feel that you're, that you're not... You don't belong here. You know? I mean, you, you didn't move to Kentucky, clearly, but uh, no, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's you, true. <laughs> you 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 put out the no, not that there's anything wrong with Kentucky, of course. You put out the um, the first album in 2005, Kiosk album. I want to I want to actually play something off the second album, uh, Love of Speed, Eshkesurat. Uh, it really starts to put you guys on the map at this point. Let me play a taste of the title track from that record, which I I believe if we've got the right edit of it, um, name checks me. Uh, or at least a car that has my name. So uh, let's just play a bit of Eshke Sorat. it's such a good song. I remember the first time I heard that, I was so excited that I've been name-checked by a cool rock band, uh, Iranian rock band, and then I realized it's it's the old shit car again that uh, that you're actually actually referencing. Um, it's such a cool sound that you guys develop by this point. What can you tell me about this period for Kiosk? It, it was it was this album was uh, was very special to me because when I left Iran, came to the US, I was I, I didn't know how to make a new album. First of all, I was very, very lucky. We were very lucky that the first album came out right when YouTube started and iTunes started. So we, we didn't really have to worry about finding uh, producers in LA or stuff like that. So we could actually release an album. There was Iranian.com around, so people started to, to uh, talk about it. And, and so 
internet helped us a lot. Uh, but the second album, I was here and I didn't have any money and I didn't know any studios and, and a group of people approached me who, uh, who had got to know my music through, through the first album. And they said, okay, when, when is the next album coming out? And I said, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how to do this here because I'd have to have a, like a home studio and I haven't thought about it really. I had the songs, I had a lot of songs, but uh, I, I was busy just settling in. And they, they offered to help. And uh, that's when I um, went to Toronto and with Ali, uh, we recorded it there. So when it came out and, and the first, mu the, the music video was very, very slick and nice. And when it was published, it got a lot of attention and everything. I, I was really excited about uh, the feedback that I got. And I, and I realized that I can keep doing this uh, outside of the country. And, and that's when the first uh, concert came about right after this album uh, was published. So it brings back a lot of good memories for me. It, it's, it's about where we started to, to kind of come out of the uh, darkness and just, just get on stage and, 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 and perform. You're you're also at this point a bona fide uh, lead singer. I mean, you when you were describing Raza Shab, which would have only been a few years earlier uh, in Tehran, um, you, you you were saying I I'm not a I wasn't a singer. I wasn't the. Uh, how did how did you develop the um, the 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 balls <laughs> to 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 decide? Okay, I I'm going to sing and I'm going to do it in my uh, Knopfler esque style. Yeah, I mean. Uh, I used to do English songs in, in, at parties or with friends and uh, cover bands, things like that. But like you said, Dire Straits, Mark Knopfler, Dylan, things like that. But but Iranian music is, doesn't really like the sound of this kind of, they, they really need you to scream, to have a big range. And uh, and I always wanted to find a singer for the band. Nobody would want to sing the songs. And, and uh, this, is a, this is a true story. When we were uh, doing the first concert in San Francisco, it was in Great American Music Hall. And we had few musicians. The only person who knew me from before uh, uh, were the bass player and the drummer from from uh, from Iran, which I had played with them before in Iran. But the rest of the band were new. And uh, as we were huddling on uh, backstage, I just looked around and I told them, "Guys, by the way, do you know this is the first time I'm singing in front of a crowd?" <laughs> and I just saw their faces. They just they lost their confidence because they were thinking, "Okay, this is the front man." It's his first time. Now we have to really, really watch out not to. to. So that's how it started, and, and I kind of started to learn. <laughs> Uh, part of the reason I ask you about that period for 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 a kiosk is because I don't and I, I don't want to overplay this, um, but uh, I, you know this this the the Persian tradition of uh, of we have to call everything. This was the greatest, you know. But but I mean, you guys, there wasn't really a tradition of indie rock um coming out of iran i mean you know or in in the in the persian space in the iranian space so i'm i'm curious partly about what that period was like for you because i'm curious about the reaction that you would get i mean this was a this was a new thing you guys were pioneers to a certain extent you weren't the only ones but you were doing something that for the most part iranians even young iranians hadn't heard iranians do Yes, and and I think we were very lucky for that. It was it was a, there was something in the making in the undergrounds in Iran. There were a lot of bands like us. There were a lot of other people who were doing other stuff that were really interesting. But we were the lucky ones who got to get out at the right time. We got to, to record the way we did, and it just coincided with the iTunes being able to release albums digitally, and then just coincided with YouTube, and we made a very 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 like. I think the the money we spent for the first video was just a sandwich we bought for the for, for the friends who were there, 
uh, that's the, the only expense we had. So we, we, we were the lucky ones, but we were not the ones that, you know, there were a lot of other bands. It was just about to happen. It's just like the first person who invented the wheel. If he wasn't alive, somebody else would have done it. But we were the lucky one who got this break. And because of that, we made a lot of mistakes. And uh, because of that, there was a lot of things that we didn't, we were not familiar with. Like, I remember we got a lot of attention from uh, non-Iranian media. First, we came out. But I was really not happy with how they handled it, how they were looking at us. It was just like, okay, these kids from Iran, these guys from Iran, they're wearing jeans, they play guitar. The Orientalism, uh, sentimentalism, right. you know, kind of a attitude. They were, they were you know, really, exoticizing you like a fetish or something. Yes, right. exactly. And, and it made me feel like you're some sort of amusement. And I didn't like that. And, and I didn't know how to handle that. But there was definitely the opportunity to, if you if you had a manager, if you knew how to work these things. So, so we didn't know a lot of things, but it was it was a nice experience for us. It was, so it was everything was new in a way. Can I ask you about you guys musically? Because it's very interesting. I mean, if I listen to that, say that record from two thousand seven, Love of Speed, and then your next couple of records as well. Th- there's an eclectic mix of what's going on there. That uh, much more so than the average western rock band say um there's there's interesting uh, i would say almost klezmer influences i want to play a, a bit of uh tokojoi uh and and just so that we can hear the musical reference of what i'm talking about let's just play a bit of that show so folks who are familiar with say yiddish klezmer music would be would feel like a, a kinship with a song like that uh tell me about the influence behind something like that being on the same record as Eshkesorat. this song uh, is is a new chapter of my, my my musical journey you know in a way uh and and the next two albums kind of uh takes it to a different level then you hear the violin a lot more you hear accordion and, and, and clarinet and this happened i think a couple of things played a big role in, in, in how we shifted the sound. Number one was that I, uh, back when I was leaving Iran, I saw this movie Underground by uh, Amir Costa Rica, uh, and it opened the door to music of Goran Bregovich to me and, and the Balkan music and all of that. And then <clears throat> you start to see the similarity it has with a lot of Russian tunes, a lot of Armenian, even Azeri tunes that we are familiar with, and, and of course the Klezmer sound. And, and you start to kind of go and dig in deeper but when, when I moved to America, I started to take uh, guitar jazz lessons from this uh, gypsy jazz guitarist that I also really like that style. And also started to learn a lot more about what, what gypsies are, who gypsies are, and, and where, where does that concept come from? And, and to me, those nomadic people 
uh, ever since I was a kid, were really attracted group of people. They were those and pirates. They didn't didn't belong anywhere. They didn't have. They didn't own anything. Those people were really uh, fascinating for me. And I realized the music they have and the instrumentation they have is because they don't they don't have a they can't have a big piano. They need to have small instruments. They need mm. to be able to carry them around. So that's the sound they produce, and that's that's the type of melody because it, the, the melancholy that's there's a certain hint of happiness, but at the same time it's tragic. So that type of melody that the whole instrument, everything about those kind of music comes from this cultural background and the, the lifestyle they have. And it's very similar to me as an immigrant who's left Iran now and yes. don't feel I don't, I don't belong yes. anywhere. And so it really appealed to me in, in that sense. So it was, it was a journey for me to learn a lot about Greek music and all those, you know, uh, different type of word music that, are connected to that style and, and it was really fascinating and you didn't feel the pressure to have any kind of consistent sound or you know a concern that we're throwing all these different things on the same record uh we we, we heard a lot of you know negative uh, comments from uh, the, the fans who were following our music from the from the start and they were surprised and and but i think overall for me it was important to to experience this I didn't want to repeat myself and, and this it was more challenging to write in this style and, and these melodies that comes to your head and, and to play these songs. And it was more fun, honestly, to it was more fun to play it live. People jump up and down and you feel the energy. But then it, we got over it after a while. We, we kind of started to lose, lose interest and we came back to where we were. We started. Over the next couple of albums, Arash, you guys really um, hit your stride, both musically and in terms of being known, I mean, you have a huge hit with Say Yaron Bia becomes this big song that everybody around the world who's of Iranian background recognizes or can sing along to with you guys and your version of it. Um, you make this curious decision in the midst of all that in 2010 uh, to become the host of a VOA show called On 10. Why did you want to move into media and television in the middle of your, your burgeoning music career? It wasn't something that I decided to, to make do as a career move. I wanted to write and I wanted to be involved in a production uh, in, in the Iranian media because I felt like there are so many things that I can contribute. Uh, and it was about the content, it wasn't about the message, it wasn't about <clears throat> being in front of the camera or uh, hosting a show. But uh, when I moved to to this, uh, to VOA and started working for VOA, things started to, to just evolve in a way that I ended up there. It wasn't something that I wanted to do. And 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 uh, even before ending up in front of the camera, I, I really thought about leaving VOA altogether because I knew it was going to head that way eventually. Um, but you know, when 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 I was presented with the challenge and and I felt like this is the best decision for a lot of other reasons, I took the chance. And it was a fun experience. It was it was. You, you know better than anyone, I guess, because you've done this. It, it's a lot of pressure when you're in front of the camera. It's a totally different game when you're in front of the camera and or being a producer behind the camera. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you feel the pressure uh, and, and it starts to get into you and, and you really have to be careful. Uh, you really have to be ready for it. Yeah, and the first time I was uh, doing it, it was also sort of a satirical kind of show to a certain extent. And 
you in that con- even in that context you realize that when you're in media uh, as opposed to when you're doing your songs that can be allegorical or or um, metaphorical or, or um, indirect in some ways in terms of the message or the politics uh, that's that's not necessarily available to you uh, on camera you know uh, and so I wonder if this was a more of a vehicle for you in terms of wanting to affect change than you felt like your your music could be exactly i thought that's that was the reason i joined voa because i thought that there is things that i can contribute to bring about change and and media is is one of the best ways to do that and uh i thought my music it takes a while to record a song to get to certain people da, 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 but, it, but if you have a weekly program and you're writing for that weekly program you can instantly uh convey your message to millions of people so that's how i got started into tv and media and uh and honestly i started to like the pressure uh not the pressure of being in front of the camera because that's a different thing but the pressure of having to meet deadlines and keep certain qualities and and being on your toes all the time so that was attractive to me I, that, that's the type of things that i enjoy doing in term, let me segue into the politics. By, by the way, the, the pressure of doing certain things. I, um, I remember the first time I started doing TV. I realized, having been in a band for a decade, that uh, I'd never really had a boss before. I'd never really had, you know. I mean, when you're in a band, I mean, you have managers and you know you have agents, and you got to get to the gig in time. But you're really calling the shots, you know. You sort of let's wake up at 10 a.m. or let's stay up till three in the morning and write a song or whatever it is. Uh, and all of a sudden, you're right. I mean, TV and and media is all about deadlines. It's all that's it's just imposed, you know. And and there's so much to navigate there for an artist that can be kind of crippling in some ways, or or educational in terms of figuring out your structuring your life, you know. Uh, so I, I guess that was a you know some, something of a shock to you as well. True. Yeah. But it was it, it's attractive it's very attractive why is it attractive you start to I, I don't know it's it's it brings out my competitive side which i don't have usually uh, it brings out my the, a side of me that i i feel like can i can i meet this deadline can i do it better next time can i you know it's just just engages me in a different level so let me let me ask you about politics and because um Anyone who knows you or knows of you or follows you knows that you're you're pretty outspoken uh, about your politics and about Iran. Uh, and you you've said, I mean, I've in researching and watching some of your interviews and and things you've said, you said that you believe that those of us in the diaspora have not done enough to let the people of the world know what's going on in Iran and to to support the the people there, our brothers and sisters in Iran. Um, and you you know, on the face of it, that that uh, statement just seems accurate and obvious and and important and at the same time i want to turn it on its head and say well what why do we need to i mean why feel the need to be political what if what if someone were to say there's not much you can do take care of yourself just be a great artist inspire people make them happy with your music uh as a distraction uh, why why do you need to be political i really don't know where, where to start because it has different levels. First of all, I think as a human being, <clears throat> we're, we're living in a time that things can change for worse in, in a very drastic way, have a very, very tragic outcome. Uh, if we just let it go and be indifferent and don't do anything. It's, it, we see that evil, um, the forces of evil, I don't want to be dramatic, but, but we see that forces of evil just taking control over countries 
in the Middle East one by one, and there's so many people suffering. So as a human being, you know what's happening there, and you know how people are feeling there, and you know what the shortcomings are, and, you, and you're kind of familiar. I don't know what's happening in Senegal. I don't know what's happening in uh, Burma, but I know what's happening in Middle East. And it, as a human being, I should be sensitive about it. I should be affected by it, and I should talk about it. So that's one thing. But, but hang on a second, I, before you get to the next thing, when you use the word indifferent, is not taking political action tantamount to indifference? Is that the same thing as indifference? Well, you don't need to be a political activist, but you, you need to be sensitive about it, I think. I mean, when we're doing fundraising, when, if you're doing a petition, if, you, if it's about calling your... Uh, congressman or whatever. These are little things that anybody can do. I mean, okay. and th this is not being a political activist. It's, it's just a citizen. It's you, you have freedom, you have liberty, and you have responsibilities that comes with it. Okay. And, and the second thing is about being an Iranian and being a, from a country that we know what kind of a, a background and cultural uh, heritage has. And we know that this is not what we deserve. And we know that mm, generation after generation in the past 40 years have been uh, <clears throat> ruined by by this regime, and just to be quiet because we managed to get us out, get ourselves out, and we don't care about what happens to the to the rest of the people there. I don't think that's fair either. So I think it, it's those two things always kind of play a role in, in in me being sensitive about this. And how much are we responsible for the predictable outcomes of the of the governments or the places where we do live? In other words, if I'm living in Canada or you living in Sweden. Um, Am I not responsible to what's happening down the street here in Canada, or should I still be thinking about what's happening in the streets of Iran? Well, definitely, definitely, you should be. I mean, you move there; that's your new home, and you're definitely sensitive. I mean, if you're sensitive about these things, you're sen definitely sensitive about what's happening in your down the street too. But but a lot of times, I see on social media, people start to have a uh, differences in, in in let's say in their um, <clears throat> host country, like let's say two people in Toronto. They don't agree who to vote for for the for the mayor. Uh, they're both Iranians, and over that issue, they start to fight and they start to argue on, on, about what's happening inside the country in Iran. Those are two different issues, and and I think we should be able to differ differentiate that. And, and uh, I see a lot of these days. I see a lot of fights on on social media over why did you guys vote for Biden or why didn't you vote for Trump? Right. And this is a different story from what's happening. So I, I know they're connected, but it's. Still, there's there's something else that happens with social media too, which I mean, was sort of um, cheekily called slacktivism a few years ago. But it's the idea that you know people feel like they're contributing by, you know, making their Instagram black for a day or um, putting up a meme that uh, that and, and and so now I've done my thing and I've contributed to change in Iran, and one wonders what effect that really has. How do you feel about that? I think it, it helps. I think it, it raises awareness. I think uh, if you look back at the social media, let, let's say Twitter, four years ago, five years ago, the mood in Twitter, Farsi Twitter, Persian Twitter in particular, you couldn't say certain things. Certain political views were not questionable. You couldn't question certain people. And gradually, a lot of users started to talk about these things. And eventually, we see today that it has changed totally, 100%. Uh, five years ago on Instagram, if you posted something political, nobody would even see it. But these days, it, the, you see a lot more of those. So it, it raises awareness. And then when, when you have the political and when you have the public opinion and social media, like on Twitter, 
when there's a campaign, you see that it makes a change. It's a lot of times, even governments in Iran, they uh, react, they issue a statement or they change a decision over some things. So they, they kind of monitor that. It, I think it, it, it helps. We can't we can't dismiss it like that. So once again, in terms of the responsibility that you you believe we should we should share, and I, I'm I, I'm not suggesting I disagree with you, but I, I just want to put it out there. So, I mean. <laughs> Iranians have been through so much, right? Whether you're political or not, they've been through so much. And so, so if there's a an Iranian woman who says, "Look, I, it was hard enough to get out of the country. Uh, uh, my cousin was, you know, died in the war. I know someone who was executed. I, uh, I've come here now to Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and I just want to be a dentist, and I don't want to have anything to do with all of that." Um, do you begrudge that, them that choice? Um, no, I, I understand that. I understand a lot of people take that position, and it's and it's it's their personal choice. Um, a lot of people become hypocrite if you don't care about politics and you, you just stop worrying and you just move on. That's one thing. But if you say I don't care about politics, but the minute you see that there's a there's a wave, there's a uh, coolness of like let's let's say Black Lives Matter or things like that, that you feel like it, you have to be part of this because it gives you identity back to the discussion we had about the movie, right. then you jump on the wagon. That's a different story. And I don't like that. But again, that's a, that's a personal choice too. So it's just a, my personal preference. I don't, I don't, I don't like it. And, and what about the role of artists and cultural figures? Arash, you've talked about, I, I really thought this was interesting. I, at some point you brought up um, South Africa uh, as an example, South Africa of the 1980s. Uh, yeah. Those of us who were alive at that time, uh, even those of us who were the kids, we remember this, how artists came together to bring attention to what was happening in South Africa. What what do you believe, at the, and which was apartheid, of course, what do you believe we can learn from that example, from that experience? I think what happened was that the artists, they started to be more vocal about what was going on in South Africa. They raised awareness in their own societies, in different countries, in Europe, in America. They started talking about racism, apartheid. And with the concerts, all the bands were sensitive about this. And it became expensive. It became costly for a, for, for a politician to have ties or uh, defend policies that support South Africa. Because now everybody was aware of what was happening in South Africa. And so the local politicians started to change their attitude. And then eventually uh, <clears throat> decision makers and, and, and politicians, they, they started to kind of take this seriously because they knew it would affect their votes. And I think that's, the, that's what we should do about what's happening in Iran and the Middle East here in the West, to raise awareness, to engage people, to let them know that this is not what Iranians are like. I mean, this is not what we deserve. And uh, there's, there's a crime happening there and, and you should be aware of this. And, and this politician that you voted for is cooperating with them and you should not vote for him next time or, or question him or things like that and i think that's a model we should we should follow. let me ask you about the impact of cultural repression um in the last uh, particularly in the last 40 years um you you've talked about the fact that you, you you believe that there really haven't been any iranian artists or cultural figures who have produced uh much of anything worthy of big international attention or acclaim in the last 40 years as a product of that repression. Um, can, can you speak to that? I think there's a misunderstanding between a lot of Iranian artists when they talk about limitations and repression. 
I hear that a lot, that a lot of artists say because of the limitations we have in this country, we become more creative, uh, especially when it comes to filmmakers. Uh, in cinema, they say Iranian cinema is so good because there's censorship. I, I just can't understand that. I understand that limitation starts to define your artistic uh, flexibility in a way I, or, or, or define what, what techniques you can use to, to express yourself as an artist. But it, it's never a good thing, especially if it's forced upon you, especially if it's forced upon you by government. And I think that's that's what I'm trying to say. And I think uh, when it comes to Iranian culture and what we have done in the last 40 years, what what we have produced as an idea, as a new idea and given it to the world, I don't see much. I don't see anything very brilliant. I, I think I disagree with you on the film thing. I think I do agree that sometimes uh not that it's allowed to flourish necessarily but that sometimes putting boundaries or that type of suppression not just in iran but in in general in suppressed societies can create the conditions where an artist has to work has to find a way around it and ends up doing something incredibly innovative but obviously i understand what you mean in general um do you think that that cultural repression runs through the manifestation of it being that as you've said that, that there's nothing you believe worthy that has has come out of that then do you do you believe that runs into the dna of those of us of iranian descent who are outside of iran i mean are, are you suggesting that iranian artists people of iranian descent who are artists say in the u.s or in england or in in canada suffer f because of that cultural repression in our homeland over the last four decades uh, no, I don't think so. I don't. I, I think it traumatizes us definitely, so that it, that will have an impact on our work. Uh, but it's not in our DNA, and I think it's it's just a it's a big barrier. It's just a big obstacle in being creative and, and, and innovative. But I think once you have the freedom and once you feel that you're connected to, you're not isolated anymore, and you can express yourself however you want. And there are a lot of Iranian uh, successful artists outside of the country. Or saying things and doing things, stuff that are really current and, and really, they're really relevant to what's happening in the world, not just Iran. You, you understand what I'm trying to say? I understand what you're trying to say. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. Okay, let's circle back to where we started, and uh, and I, I want to finish with Sweet Destiny. Before we get there, um, the, all of the different things that you do and the different personalities of Farash uh, <laughs> Sobhani. Uh, I mean, one of the things you've done in recent years is to be the producer of Persia's Got Talent. Um, I'm trying to reconcile that guy with the guy who's just been talking for the last 10 minutes, who's very serious about wanting to create change and, and uh, you know, the kind of dialogue that you've been having. What do you get out of that, out of, be, out of the TV production side of what you do? Yeah, I mean, when I was uh, offered to do this uh, project, I, I thought to myself, Oh my God, uh, entertainment is so difficult and I'm not such an entertaining person. Uh, I wonder how I can pull it off and uh, how can I really connect with this project? Because uh, I, I wasn't a fan of like these entertainment shows. I never watched uh, a lot of entertainment shows before moving to Europe. And when I was offered to do this and I started to plan for it and I started to think, okay, where can I find these people? And where can I do this? And, and, and all these problems started to kind of like suck me in and when I start to actually uh, go into the interviews to find these talents, we went to 10 cities, I, I think, and, and these people showed up to, to show us their talents. So it was a pre-interview thing. 
Uh, and I started to get to know these people. I realized how emotional this, this, this show was and, and how deep it was because all these guys, we were doing this show outside of the country. This was the only Got, got Talent show that was being shot outside the country. And so you had to go and find these people. A lot of them are, are refugees. With, and all of them have a unique story and, and all of them have unique talents. And you just start to connect with them and become emotionally involved in, in a different level that it's not entertainment anymore. And it was such a such an interesting experience for me and I learned so much and it became such a joy ride in, in, in a way that um, each different person, you wanted to for all of them to win. You, all, you liked all of them and you knew all their stories because you had to do interviews, you had to set up stories for them and all of that. It was an amazing experience and it was totally different with, from what any entertainment show or any game show has been. Do you think you're going to do more of the TV or the producing in TV? Yeah, I think I think I, I enjoy the work uh, environment and, and the whole setup. I, I, I like that. I, uh, but I also want to do more films if, if possible, if, if I'm given the chance. And music, of course. Let me come back to the film, Sweet Destiny. Um, what, what is your greatest hope? of what will uh, come of this project? Uh, I, I didn't start it with a goal. I started as, as a telling a story, uh, but what I would like to get out of it right now is for people to see it. I want, I want it to, to be seen. I want it to be ex get exposure. Uh, and I want people to, to start talking about it and, and to start talking about the issue. And I hopefully want to see more bands doing things like this and more artists uh, dedicating their work to causes like this. So that's my hope if I'm not being too cliche. You know, I usually, uh, to, to speak in cliches, the, uh, the a prototypical question that one would ask someone like you at the end of an interview like this is, um, are you hopeful about the future of, of Iran or, or whether change can come? Um, but I, I, I may take a stab at answering the question and uh and and you can tell me if i'm right or not i tend to believe that someone like you who spends the amount of time passion and sweat making a a film when it's not the right business model uh, in the of the moment um about capital punishment in iran um throwing your music and your artistry in there and really wanting to amplify the voice around that i believe someone like you really is ultimately uh, an optimist that you believe hope can happen that you believe change is possible otherwise you wouldn't be doing all that am i right that's true that's very true especially with what i see today in iran uh, i mean it's it's about the new generation that are really really energetic objective they know what they want and uh, they seem to be a lot lot uh more experienced than than we were when we were their age so i'm hopeful with them and i hope that uh, we see change very soon. I, I tell the story to almost anybody who asks me this question, um, and and I'm sure that you you've had the similar story when you were in Berlin. You get in a cab, and most of the time you start talking about the wall. A lot of times you start talking about the wall and and how was it? Were you here? Were you living here when when it happened? And, and a lot of times you hear them say yes, and till 24 minutes, the 24 hours before the collapse of the wall, nobody would have thought of it. So. It's just like that. So I hope that we live to see that day soon. All right, so Pani, I, I, I appreciate the time, the perspective, your candor, and um, I thank you very much for doing this today. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed this. Bye-bye, sir.
Thank you, brother. Arash Subhani, a member of the band Kiosk, an Iranian musician, TV host, and producer who's uh, played a role in the breaking the mold of what is defined as the Iranian sound. He's just released Payana Shirin, Sweet Destiny, the first ever musical in Iranian cinema. Uh, you can hear the related album on Spotify, watch it on YouTube. Arash Sobhani joined us from San Francisco, California today. <laughs> به من نمیاد برنامه چیزی نمونه دیگه از این رابطه روزنامه یک کونه بلان با یه سخته اونارم برده ببن یه چیزی بین ما بود که حالا میگی دیگه نیست غیر اون واسه من چیزی دیگه مهمیست بقیه شو برده ببن گیتارم برده ببن یاد اون روزا ازنم پاک نمیشه خاطره تو چمدون جا نمیشه اگه نمیگفتم اونم بردا ببر چمدونم بردا ببر چیزی چون ازنم ایگو 2011 and the record triple distilled a little bit of kiosk Arash Sobhani and the song Varda Bebar. Nice choice, Shaya. Nice choice. I love that. Oh, you like that? It's got a good vibe to it. You know what it sounds like? Dire Straits. I have no idea what that is. Well, now you know who they are. I don't know what that is. But it's got that gypsy kind of like Mm. cool, I don't know. And I love his voice. Gypsy. I don't know. You you know that violin sound? It kind of sounds Uh Yeah, I love it. That's a great, that is a great song. And, uh, the microphones are back on for Captain Reza, Groovy Shia, and the fabulous Keon, uh, Pony. He's extremely politically outspoken. Lately. Yes. Because I, I, I got to know Arash uh, when we interviewed him for um, uh, Pink Floyd originally. Yes. Before that, I, I wasn't really aware of his music. But and then really, I, you didn't know no, Kiosk didn't, when you no, were coming up. No, 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 no right. I didn't. I didn't because uh, I, I, it was like when I just moved to. That's Canada. That's right. You had already come to, to Canada, yeah. And I was trying to listen to like consume myself, like consume uh, as much as English content right. as possible. So right, right. I, I was, uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't listen to him. But um, he's not listening to every like there. He doesn't have one song that is not political, does he? Like every. Oh, some love songs. Yeah. 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 Like like yeah. this one, Oh, I, I think thought this was, was about migration and like... No, <laughs> well, it's about like the fight between... I, I, I can imagine it was about the fight between him and like his partner. Oh, interesting. And, like, interesting, because mm. I thought like it you was You were projecting that onto y- it. I know, now that like I listened to it, yeah. but before that as well, like when I researched him, I... I'm la- every song of his that I listen to, I'm like, oh, this means this. And I'm reading like way too much. And I'm like, this is political as well. No, but uh, no, I don't think everything he does at all is uh, there's, there's been many songs that aren't directly uh, sort mm. of political. But he, it's interesting that it's in direct contrast to some recent guests we've had mm-hmm. that have directly said, look, I'm an artist. I don't, yes. I don't yeah. need to be political. Yes. And even I speak by being an artist or I speak by that's what I do. You know, So it's interesting to have Arash say, uh, 
that he really believes everybody should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they should be using their platform. If yeah. you're outside of Iran and you're not, uh, you're not, you know, making your voice heard politically, that um, you know he's taking issue with that, and, and mm-hmm. that's very interesting. It, it I, is, I agree with him. Actually, I, I take issue with people that have the platform to really help their people and especially in our culture we have a lot of effed up issues that we need to voice and you know grab attention from the general public so to have a platform and not use it for the good of the people it's it's very hard for me to digest that so i I, i'm on the side of arash i think it's your public duty to to some extent uh, i gotta you can't you can't just keep your mouth shut completely while your people are getting murdered on the street but but on the other hand if you're you know a female singer who's Mm. spent your life fighting to just be a female singer and you're now in the diaspora and you're a persian female singer for example Mm -hmm. even just being that person is Mm -hmm. kind of on the cutting edge to a certain extent you know let alone having to i mean why shouldn't that person have the right to say look i i don't want to get involved politically i i I just want to do my work and i i want to be an artist and and you know lead by being an artist i mean to each their own but it's not even a political issue at some points of time usually it's a human rights issue and that it's it's very hard for me to see that when i see someone like that has so much so many followers so much publicity yet they don't voice any anything (laughs) uh yeah but i mean for example i'm talking about myself Mm I, I'm not that kind of person who writes a political song or, mm-hmm. you know. Right, like, that's not your style. Yes, but because the like f- female cannot sing in Iran, mm. I choose to work with female singers. So mm. it's my political act, you know, it's, it, it's my kind of rebellious act. Exactly. But there's also, I mean, I remember we had this debate around Paris Tanavali, you mm. know, who right. does chooses to not be particularly political. And, and I just think there is a there is a lead by, and, and certainly this has come up with Asghar Fahadi recently mm-hmm. when you know um, right, right, there, right. a lot of Iranians around the world were taking umbrage at the fact that he had not more directly spoken out about atrocities or things going on in Iran when you know he was celebrated at the Cannes Film Festival mm-hmm. but you know with these guys I mean given the stereotypes and the negative images of Iranians and, and sort of ideas that people continue to have in the West I just feel like Paris Tanavoli being an amazing sculptor that is globally renowned and that, you know, um, people and, and, a, and a beautiful human who speaks so in, in such lovely ways. And, and uh, isn't that a great example for our, our community to the world? Does he still does he also need to be holding a placard and be saying, you know, uh, he opposes uh, something or other? I don't know. I guess I can't answer that to each their own. Like well, your I answer said. is your answer <laughs> is that's not enough. I, you think he needs to be just, political. No, I mean, I everybody has their own reasons. I, I guess I'm just saying that if I were in the same position, I couldn't sit back and not say anything. It would be very hard for me to sit back and watch my people get killed and murdered and just awful atrocities happening in my country and just not mm-hmm. voice an opinion on that. Mm-hmm. I can't. Yeah, and you're but voicing your opinion here. Yeah. And it might, and it could get you in trouble sometimes. It could, maybe. Mm-hmm. It was sometimes mm-hmm. within the team, even. Yeah. Well, I <laughs> guess you don't want to go to Iran and get a nose job now, Keon. <laughs> no, I'll just go to Turkey. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which also arguably could be just as bad. Wait, anyway. Did you, now your nose job, Reza, did you get Jeez. it in Iran <laughs> or outside of Iran? <laughs> I Where <did> was it? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Bye, bye. 
every time. Like I know, he has the no. He has the no. There's no nose that looks more like it's been nose jobbed than uh, than Reza's, <laughs> and yet you know. How, yeah. how, how do we know? Maybe we don't know. We'll if you know. can actually prove that I got a nose job, I will pay for your nose job. <laughs> okay, let's take him no <laughs> That's actually yeah. worth it to me to, <laughs> to, to try and find out exactly where expert. you got your nose job. <laughs> Examine me. Put me through X-ray. Uh, I feel like it's too late for me to get a nose job. I, you know, I, I should have done it years ago. I don't think so you're I've done too something hard about this yourself. huge, you know, <laughs> monstrosity. <laughs> it's not even that okay. Uh, well, from certain <laughs> angles, <laughs> you know, from the yeah. side, it's not so Maybe bad. But then he turns uh, an angle, and yeah, I'm like, and, the, and there's a shadow cast <laughs> over half the room. <laughs> but it's no, you know, you the know, truth. The truth is, it isn't. It isn't that big now because no. the rest of me is has gotten has gotten no. larger. Uh, I tell you, I've told yeah. you before when I was a kid. <laughs> I mean, oh, okay. I was, you know, one quarter of the size I am now. Yeah, and I was yeah. super skinny, but my nose was exactly the same size as it is now. I mean, people oh, were just like, kid. you know, in the um, Austin Powers movies where <laughs> Fred Savage has like a big mole, mole or yeah, something yeah. on his, and they said, don't look at the mole, whatever. You, <laughs> like people were like that with my nose. They're like, ah, ah, don't mention his nose. <laughs> nosey, 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 nosey. <laughs> hey, uh, shout out to Arash uh, Sopani but also Arash and Anita Fazalipur, the founders of MyTerms.ca, a successful mortgage company in Ontario, Canada. They believe in educating their clients to understand every aspect of the financing being obtained, and they see each transaction through from beginning to end to make sure they are closed with ease. If you're looking for a mortgage in the Toronto or greater Ontario region, go to MyTerms.ca, MyTerms, one word, .ca. They're among the best, and both Arash and Anita make it a priority to give back to the Persian community. Big thanks to them and MyTerms.ca. Also a big thank you again to Kati Kavandi and Kati Kavandi Immigration Services Incorporated for making this edition of Rook possible. This is a full service immigration firm that offers all inland and overseas immigration services, including temporary visas, permanent visas, PR extensions, citizenship applications. Kathy and her team are available to inform and assist you as their client throughout the whole immigration process. If you want to come to Canada or you are here and need support, you need an immigration counselor. Kathy is your person. Kavandi.ca, uh, Kathy Kavandi Immigration Services. All right. Keon, I think we got, uh, we got, you got, you ready? You got yeah, your, all right. It. It's Monday. It's letters of the week. Uh, uh, yeah. Not bad. <laughs> Wasn't your best, for sure. <laughs> All right. Uh, last week on episode 145, we had Hamid Saidi on the show. He's a sand tour master, a composer, and a Grammy Award winner with his group uh, Opium Moon. Plus, we had broadcaster Behzad Boulour and recording artist Azam Ali join us at the Rook Brown table uh, where we discussed the late Abbas Chaminara uh, and his legendary music stores, Beethoven Music in Tehran and Music Box in Los Angeles. We have uh, Zoya Katuli wrote to us saying, I love their music. I downloaded it on my music app. It's so different and very relaxing. It suits my mood. Thanks, Gian John and Rook team. And she's referencing Opium Moon. That's actually. right. I was going to yeah. say that. Yeah, the, the music yeah. of Opium Moon. Yeah. That's right. 
and then we have Hushang Academy. <laughs> Hushang Academy wrote to us saying, Gold Chain Sand Tour, and now Ustad Hamid playing this instrument in a heavenly way. I would say his mom is well alive and will stay so in his beautiful music. Thank you, Rook Media, for this conversation. Nice. Thank you, Hushang. And then we have username Almond Blossom wrote saying, This episode was excellent and I loved it. After listening to this episode and getting to know Abbas Chaminara, I am proud to be Iranian. Good luck, Rook team. Nice. That's nice. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, we have a few general letters that came in about no specific episode. Um, we have a Arash JB. By the way, I should mention, somebody was saying to me, uh, they just discovered that we sometimes read out uh, as letters mm-hmm. things that are posted right. on YouTube and Instagram and things mm-hmm. like that uh, or SoundCloud. So you, you can, in other words, we don't just read letters that are sent to us right. in our info at Rook Media uh, mailbox. So mm-hmm. um, so yes, you can send us a letter at info at rookmedia.com but, but by all means, post on YouTube or Instagram mm-hmm. where we see all of that and you factor that in when you're reading exactly. the letters, right? Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, so we have Arash JB. I believe he sent us a message on Instagram, a uh, personal message. He sent us uh, this saying, awesome job, everyone. Great podcast. I'm recommending it to all my friends and colleagues. Very nice. Thank you, Thank Arash. You. Just a note. I tried to become a patron, but my card was declined what? at my band side. <laughs> I couldn't do this? it again as it showed pending. <laughs> also, I noticed that I can't, cannot unsubscribe or reverse being a patron to redo it. Please check to see if the option works. Oh, who's who's responsible for this? We'll check that. that Someone needs to check this out. That would be uh, thoughtful, Nagin. Thoughtful, right, Nagin. Well, but we'll get that checked yeah. out. But uh, thank you, Wait, RSJB. Wait, I'm not done. Oh. So no, more. I just want to say thanks for becoming a, trying to yeah, become yes, a patron. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Uh, at rookmedia.com <laughs> where you can become a patient. I can't give him my account. Arash goes on saying, again, amazing podcast. Nice sections, good blend of different topics, talks, questions, etc. I did my whole renovation listening to your voices. Also, I like the dynamics between you guys. Great job. Mm. Wow, that's very sweet. What happens when the renovation is done? Then no more you rook. start something else. Right. You start a new project. All right. <laughs> um, all right. Well, it's time for letter of the week. Oh. Okay. As I already mentioned, this letter is pretty great. Like it's it's a very heartwarming, emotional, beautiful, just all of it wrapped into one little okay. teddy bear. Firuze right. Hashimi um, emailed us saying, "Hello, Gian and Rook team. What a great group you guys are. I look forward to each episode and can't keep up." Thank you for everything you guys do. Our family was one of the first Iranian families in Canada over 50 years mm. ago. I was born here and my Iranian Shanasname is number two. Wow. So that's how few of us there were back then. My father has great stories to tell of his migration here to Canada. One famous story he tells is back then when there were hardly any Iranians in Canada. One day when a friend of his said he heard there is an Iranian family living in Kitchener, Ontario, he packs his wife and three small children in the car late at night and travels there just to see a fellow Iranian family. (laughs) He has so many other great stories too. Anyway, it's so nice to see you guys are all bringing Iranians closer these days with your wonderful program. Keep up the great work. Would love to meet you all in person one day. You are such an entertaining group. Take care and Mizumbashin. Oh, Is that not the fantastic. most beautiful letter? 
I, I almost want to like hear more of these stories. Mm. It's pretty incredible. The one of the first Iranian families here in Canada. Firuzeh Hashemi. That is just beautiful. Thank you so much. And uh, she says she would like to meet all of us in person one mm -hmm. day. I think that would be that would be lovely. lovely yeah. You know, for just twenty dollars. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. If you become a patron, you can buy our lives. Here, here's what it is: <laughs> if you become a patron for twenty dollars, you can meet either me, Shia, or Keon. And for just five dollars, you can meet Reza. <laughs> If you don't want to pony up to the $20. You don't have to pay $5. You'll get $5. <laughs> He'll pay you. Yeah. He needs friends. I need if human contact. If you need $5. <laughs> I just need to say hello to someone. <laughs> okay. Oh, the man with the Poor most Reza. perfect you know, nose in the room. Someone actually show. mentioned that we make fun of Reza too much, but it's all, it's all love. Because he's, the, because he's the you, best. Yeah. yeah. If yeah. you saw his face, you would make fun best. of him too. <laughs> Take crap all over me and then at the end he's the best he's the best oh you get your nose job all right let's wrap it up guys uh thank you very much everybody thank you uh fuse for that lovely letter and thanks to everybody for listening today this is full time for rook for today remember to find all things rook our episodes our guests our videos our links to different projects rookmedia.com is the website rookmedia.com thanks to the amazing team who put this show together thoughtful Nagin, the fabulous keon super patty saw producer susan ponta the artist savvy roham sponsorship sean aray merdad captain reza and groovy shaya thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content please subscribe if you've not done so already on uh, any of our platforms like wherever you're listening to us right now the subscription part is free just press subscribe and so we can end up in your mailbox more often find me on facebook or instagram at gian gomeshi thanks to the whole team mizumashi